in 1 Kings chapter 9. If you're looking in your pew Bible, it's on page 290. We're going to be looking at the life of Solomon, king of Israel, this morning. And really, we could kind of go through the whole book of First Kings, the first 11 chapters of it. Uh, but we're, really, we're just going to drill down on this one chapter to read, and then we'll be jumping all over, so it'll, it'll help you to keep the Bible open in front of you. But we'll stay mo- mainly around First Kings chapter 9. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. First Kings 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. And I have consecrated this house that you have built. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods, and they worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. You may be seated. Let's take a moment and reflect on God's word together. Now, if, you, uh, if you're in kindergarten through second grade, this is the time for you to go and uh, enjoy 
worshiping with your friends. It was so great to see the pictures of all the kids uh, that have kind of come through our church. Um, that, that was really helpful to see the faces and uh, to, to put it all together. And if you've been around, I mean, that's just one of the most exciting things that's happened in our church in the last couple of years. If, if you're interested in getting involved with the tutoring program, uh, Michelle and Sharon, they'll be outside in the lobby standing at a table. So just talk to them and, uh, I mean, they'll, they'll sign you up for everything and you'll be incredibly blessed. So we're going to be spending our time mostly in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 9 and around. But as I said, we're covering, in all these uh, sermons in this series, we're trying to cover the whole of the life of this one character, this one person, and the big story of God's people. And so we'll be jumping around a little bit, but I thought I thought it'd be appropriate to start the story uh, from one of our favorite kind of story Bibles that we read at home. This is uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you have it. But this is the way uh, they start their explanation of the big story of the Bible. Here's what it says. It says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing, it's, a, it's about God and what he has done. Now, other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. Now, the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince, you might say a king, who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. You see, the best thing about this story, the Bible, is that it's true. It's such a great reminder, isn't it? That especially as we look through all these amazing characters, these towering figures in the Old Testament, that the Bible isn't really a book uh, about these heroes, people we should copy. Now, when we come to people like David and we come to Solomon, especially, we look at them and we think, yeah, I mean, those guys were pretty heroic. They did some incredible things. I mean, David killed Goliath. I mean, Solomon, he was one of the greatest kings, possibly the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. But as we'll see, he makes some pretty big mistakes. And I think what we're going to find out is he's not the hero. You know who the hero is. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the one that we talked about way back in Genesis 3.15. Remember, we talk about it almost every week. He's the promised one, the seed of the woman who would come, born of a woman, and he would crush the head of the serpent. He's the hero. He is the great king. And at this point uh, in 1 Kings, in the story of, of God's people... Now, God's people have made it into the promised land. They've come out of slavery in Egypt, and they've already had one really bad king whose name was 
Saul. You remember Saul. He was, Saul was for Saul. Saul was the really bad king. And they've had one good king, but an imperfect king. His name was, after Saul, who was he? David, of course. So you had Saul, then you have David. And then God made a promise to David, we talked about last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one of David's sons, someone who came from David's line, would rule after him. And he would be the really great king. He would be the one who would build a temple for the people where they could meet with God. Uh, he, would the one, he would be the one uh, who would build the temple so that God's presence could come down to be with his people and bring peace and prosperity forever. And his kingdom would never end. There's this prom, promise of a permanent and perfect kingdom that's going to come through one of the sons of David. And so as we look at Solomon's life, we're going to be asking the same question that the Israelites were asking. When this new king came onto the scene, this son of David, we're going, is he the king we've been waiting for? Is he the one we, that we've been looking for? Is he the one that's going to bring this permanent and perfect kingdom? Is he the hero that we need? But I think we're going to see that both in his successes and in his sins, Solomon shows us that he's not the true king. In both his success, at, a, at the very height of everything he does, and, and in his sin, in, in the lowest moments of his life, he shows us that what we need is actually a perfect king. One whose heart is completely devoted to God. So let's first, let's just start by looking at Solomon's successes. And we're going to start all the way back, if you just put your finger in 1 Kings 9, because we'll get to that in a second. Turn back at just a couple pages to chapter 3. This is kind of the beginning of Solomon's reign. And from the very beginning, we learn a couple things about Solomon. One, he is loved by God. I mean, this guy is absolutely, he's, he's one of the best. He's one of the favorites. And one of the first things we learn about Solomon, it, it, not only is he loved by God, he also loves God. That's what it says in 1 Kings 3, um, chapter, verse 1a. He loves the Lord and that he walked in the laws of his father, David. So you see this guy, Solomon, he, he's blessed. And then Solomon in, in this passage, God comes to Solomon and God basically says, Solomon, just ask me what you want. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. Just, just ask me for something. Do you see God's heart? Ask me for whatever you want. And, and Solomon does something incredible. He asks for wisdom. And it pleases God. And so God gives Solomon wisdom. You see, you see it uh, in, in verses 3 and 4. That, Solomon, uh, that he gives Solomon wisdom. Actually, you see it in, in really in, in chapters 3 and chapters 4. That, that he gives Solomon wisdom. And that just doesn't mean that he's intelligent, right? That he has smarts. Uh, he's not just some egghead, but Solomon is actually, uh, has this shrewd ability to judge people and judge situations. He's got this incredible gift of administration, of putting the right people in the right places. He's got this incredible political acumen where he organizes his whole kingdom so that everything prospers and everything's in the right place and everyone's doing everything the way that it should be. So he's this incredibly wise and capable ruler. And not only that, not only is he intelligent and shrewd and an able ruler, but Psalm's wisdom means that he, he spouts out this poetry. 
and these proverbs and these psalms and these songs. And so this guy, I mean, he's the total package. I mean, he's smart. I mean, he's artistic. He's this Renaissance man, right? And not only that, he's a scientist. I mean, he could tell anything about any kind of bird or tree or plant. I mean, he, he just is absolutely, his mind is unparalleled. And God says, I, I, I'll give you all this wisdom. But not only that, because you asked me, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wealth beyond belief. I'm going to give you fame. Everyone around the world is going to know your name, Saul, Solomon. And he, this wealth and this fame comes largely because the kingdom of Israel, which has been uh, at war for years and years and years, for generations, is finally at peace. So you can imagine, the kingdom's at war, all, all the men are off and they're fighting in the army. Now, they don't have to fight anymore, so they come home. And what do they do? I mean, they plant farms, they raise their animals, and, and they build up the economy. So they're there, and no one's worried about anyone coming in and stealing it. So the, the country just gets built up, and you know, the GDP just grows and grows and grows. So everyone, the economy's booming. It's this wonderful time, and Solomon's bringing peace and wealth and prosperity. And it, it, it's crazy, the things that happen where they talk about it. It's like, you, you know how sometimes when you think about like the roaring 20s, these boom times in America's history where these fancy monopoly guys with monocles were just lighting cigars with $100 bills? Like that's the kind of scenario that's happening with Solomon's time right here. It said that silver and gold were worth such little money that they wouldn't even use silver to eat with. They'd only use gold. That silver and gold were as common during Solomon's time as stones. It's just ordinary stones that you find in a gravel parking lot. And that chariots and horses, which is like the, the, it's like the iPad. It's like the pinnacle of technology. Chariots and horses. Seriously, I mean, it's like you thought the car was a big invention. A chariot and a horse was a huge invention. If you had a chariot, if you had a horse, you must have been like a king or a really important, important person. There were so many chariots and there were so many horses in Israel during this time. People couldn't even keep track of them. They just lose one and, and buy another. And so it was just so unbelievably prosperous. Solomon sat on a throne of gold. But underneath the gold was ivory. So he carved this huge throne out of ivory. And then he's like, that's not precious enough. I'm going to put gold over on top of it. And not only that, this was kind of the, the pinnacle of all the wealth, of, of just the, the display of prosperity that this people had. Solomon built this temple for God. Now, the temple that a nation had to represent their God, it kind of said a lot about the people. How prosperous were they? How powerful were they? How great is their God? And so Solomon said, this temple is going to blow the doors off everything else. The inside of the temple was completely covered in gold. The outside of the temple was completely covered in gold. The inner part of the temple, the holiest of holies, was this perfect 20 by 20 cube. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. Everything was the height of craftsmanship and beauty it was super extravagant. And, and the best part of all, when Solomon dedicates this temple, he throws this huge party. This is the crowning achievement over everything. There's this beautiful temple, this beautiful spot of worship. It's glittering gold everywhere. And then Solomon comes in and Solomon prays. 
And Solomon says, God, would you just bless this temple, please? And God's presence comes down in this mighty cloud, like on Mount Sinai. And it comes down and the people can't even see anything, but they're, they're, they're singing songs, they're blowing trumpets and they're sacrificing animals left and right. And it's just this bedlam of worship and celebration. Because they're going, God is with us. God is protecting us. Our King's awesome. God is awesome. We're awesome. Yeah. It's, it's just like this time of total celebration. No one had ever seen anything like it. So the Lord blesses the people and he brings his presence. And now you've got these people coming through Israel. Remember what Paul talked about? It. You've got this big nation of Babylon right here, right next to the nation of Israel. And then you've got the nation of, um, of Egypt right here, these big world powers. And if they want to do business with each other, they've got to pass through this little tiny nation called Israel. And so they're going through Israel, these big world powers, the mighty nations of the world. And they're passing through this little piddly nation called Israel. And they're going, what's that place? What's that temple? Who's that king? Who's this God? And everyone is giving glory to God. And they're seeing how great God is because of this King Solomon and what he's done and the temple that he's built and just all the blessing that God had poured out on this people, everyone that goes through. It's like when you go to uh, Canada or something and you go, wow, these people are really clean. They pick up their trash here. There's like no trash anywhere. If you go to Toronto, that's what they go to. They go, they go to Israel and they're like, man, this people, they're awesome. They're incredible. They've got all, they've got more chariots than we've got. They've got a better temple than we have. We want to be like the Israelites. <laughs> And so if you were an Israelite living in Israel during this time, or just someone passing through, you would have thought, certainly, this is it. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for. We've got wealth. We've got amazing worship. We've got peace. We've got prosperity. We've got this king who's unparalleled wisdom. I mean, if you had asked Abraham, is this it? Is this the guy who was supposed to come? Abraham would have said, well, um, do you have the land? Are you settled in the land? Check. We're settled in the land. Are the people prosperous? I mean, you're supposed to be prosperous, like the, the, you know, like the sand, like the stars in the sky. And we're like, yeah, we're prosperous. I mean, we are doing all right, Abraham. And he'd go, check. Sounds great. Sounds like you've got it. But what if you went back to Moses? And you just ran this by Moses and you said, Moses, I mean, look at this king that we have. I mean, look at all the, look at the prosperity, look at the wisdom, look at the wealth. I mean, look at this temple. God brought his presence to the temple. Moses, just like Mount Sinai. But I think what Moses might have said was, well, is he really following God's word? Is is he doing what God told me the king should do. I mean, it's great, all this outward blessing, but is he really following after God's heart? So that's the question I want us to ask. Let's look, uh, now that we've kind of gotten the background. Chapter 9, God comes to speak to Solomon. This is right after the high point of Solomon's career. He's dedicated the temple. He's prayed this incredible prayer in chapter 8. I mean, absolutely one of the best prayers in the Bible. If you want to learn how to pray a prayer, go and look at Solomon's high priestly prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. I mean, it's, it's incredible. 
The things that he says, uh, I mean, he really was, he was an incredibly wise man. And then God appears to him. He'd appeared to him once before. And now uh, he appears to Solomon. And he kind of has a little bit of like a performance review with God. It says uh, in chapter 9, verse 1, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, all the great stuff was all finished. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. And he said, I have heard your prayer and your plea. I've consecrated this house. My eyes and my heart will be there forever for all time. And he's basically saying, hey, you've done well, Solomon. I've heard your prayers. You did a good job building the temple. I blessed you and your people. But then he turns, doesn't he? Starting in verse verse four, I think kind of what God is saying to Solomon, he says, we've talked about everything you've done. We've talked about the kind of the outward state of the nation, but let's just stop for a second. Let's talk about you, Solomon. Verse four, as for you, Solomon, let's not talk about that, but as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing everything that I've commanded you, keeping my statutes, keeping my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. You haven't established it already? Then I will establish your royal throne, as I promised David, when I said you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So what would we think that Solomon needs to do to really establish the throne? I mean, pretty much everything he's done, right? Keep up the wisdom, keep up the the good political strategy, keep that economic policy, keep up the fame. That's really nice. Everyone is kind of afraid of us because they're all coming through and they think we're the best nation. Uh, All these outward and obvious signs of blessing. That's what that's what we would say Solomon needs to do. Just keep that up. Four more years of that, Solomon. Just keep that up and then we'll be great. But look at what God's priorities are. God says, Solomon, as for you, I want you to keep yourself dead set on obeying my commands. Focus on my word. This is the most important thing. Keep my law. We're concerned about what's on the surface, but God is concerned about Solomon's soul. Now, notice, if you will, in verse four, there's that word if at the very beginning. And it's kind of a scary word, isn't it? A lot hangs in the balance on those two little letters. If you'll keep my commands, then all this good stuff is going to happen. And I think what God seems to be implying is that Solomon hasn't maybe really done it up to that point. God seems like he's calling Solomon to account, which is surprising because doesn't it say in, in, right in the beginning, it says Solomon loved the Lord and the Lord loves Solomon. So and hasn't God blessed the nation? I mean, isn't there peace and prosperity? Hasn't God done what he promised that he would do? Surely Solomon's the king. And, and the answer is, yeah, God's done what he said he's going to do. But Solomon hasn't done everything that he said he's going to do. So let's look. Let's go, let's go back and let, let's ask Moses again. Get Moses out. Moses, what was the king of Israel really supposed to do? Besides all this great stuff and make the nation great, what was he supposed to do? And you go back, and if you look in Deuteronomy 12, 
This is what he says. This is what Moses says about the kings. It says, these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you. Here's what you got to do. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and over every green tree. You shall tear down their altars. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way. But here's what you need to do. Seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. And go to that place. And there you bring all that I command you. Bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices there. And take care that you do not offer your burnt sacrifices and your offerings at any place that you see. Don't just worship me any place that you choose, but go only to the place that the Lord will choose. Which, of course, we know is the temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's the tabernacle. It's, it's a place where the Lord dwells. But when we first meet Solomon in the second half there of Chapter 3, verse 1, if you just flip back, you see, verse 3a, the first half, Solomon loved the Lord. And the second half of the verse, this is what it says. Only, Solomon loved the Lord only, only, but, Solomon loved the Lord, but he made sacrifices at the high places. He was doing exactly what God's word told him to do. I mean, this is the second commandment. It's textbook. First commandment, only love and serve the Lord your God. So have no other gods besides the true God. Commandment two, don't make any graven images, which means don't worship the true God in any kind of false way that you just think of on your own. Even if you're worshiping the true God, you don't have the liberty to choose how to worship him. You're not just to do what seems right. You're supposed to do what God commands. So when God meets again with Solomon, it's, it's almost as though he's warning him here in chapter 9. He's saying, all right, Solomon, remember those little cracks? Remember those little deviations from my law in the beginning, those little compromises? I need you to take those seriously. What's required if you're going to lead my people is wholehearted devotion. And it would seem that what God is saying in this exchange with Solomon is all the blessings that I've given you and your nation, Solomon, they were on loan. It's a down payment. I gave them to you because I'm a generous God and I love my people. I love to bless them. I love to provide for them. Everything you have now, Solomon, it's just a preview of what's going to come. I'm just getting warmed up. The wisdom, the wealth, the temple, all of that was paid for, Solomon, with a penny out of my pocketbook. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you think I've blessed you, I haven't even gotten started. But Solomon, you have to follow my commands. You have to stay obedient. And so God's saying to Solomon, hey, no matter what it looks like on the outside, I'm after your heart. I'm interested in your soul. And so we just have to ask ourselves, uh, what's really most important to you? What are you focused on? What are you concerned about? God is saying you can have everything together from the outside, materially, even religiously. But inwardly, your soul can be in turmoil because you've made a compromise somewhere along the line. And and I wonder if you know that feeling too. That feeling of have to keep up the show outside. 
But inwardly, there's just something not right between you and God. God's concerned about the heart, not just the outward state of a people or a nation. And, and I think especially, gosh, especially in this time when you have all the debates and all the political candidates and um, so many people are talking about making America great, making America prosperous, making America peaceful, making America powerful. Politicians are making all kinds of promises. I think what we see here is that it is a small thing for God to make a nation great. It's a tiny thing for God to make a nation or a people prosperous or peaceful or successful. And as we'll see, as we look through this history, God raises up nations and he casts down nations at the drop of a hat. It's a small thing to God. But what God's really concerned about is the heart of the people in the nation. Are they turned towards him? Are they turned towards something else? Are they focused on obeying his word? Are they focused on something else? That's just my two cents. That, you know, that's, that's free. So here, even at the height of his success, we see that the secure everlasting throne that's promised to the son of David, that, that, that just doesn't seem to match up with Solomon, does it? Because that little word, if... The throne just seems a little bit too um, insecure, impermanent, doesn't it? It's, it seems a little too losable to really, for Solomon to really be the true king that we're waiting for. And in fact, we find that this prosperous kingdom, it's just teetering on the edge of ruin. And you know what I'm reminded of? It's like that moment, you know, the Roadrunner cartoons. You got Wile E. Coyote and you got Roadrunner. And always there's a huge cliff. There's always a cliff. I mean, you always find themselves on a cliff. And what happens, right, is he's on the cliff, and, he's, and the coyote's standing on the cliff, and what happens? Something happens where he tries to blow up the other side, and what happens? He always ends up cutting himself off the cliff. He's standing out on the edge, and he doesn't realize what danger he's in. And so he takes the dynamite, or he takes a saw, or he takes something else, and then he just cuts himself off. And he falls. That's Solomon. That's the nation of Israel. So let's see uh, the rest of what God says in 1 Kings 9. We've talked about Solomon's success. Let's look at Solomon's sin for just a second. 1 Kings 9, starting in verse 6. But, listen Solomon, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, and you go and serve other gods and you worship them, I'll cut off Israel from the land. I'll cut you off. I'll make a break. And you'll fall. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the nations. And he says, this temple, this beautiful, glorious temple that you've built, the height of human achievement, it's going to be dust and rubble. And people are going to walk by and go, what happened to that people? So just let that sink in. God is warning Solomon that if he turns aside, if his soul gets off track and he ceases to be committed to God, all of it, it's going to literally crumble. God's going to turn the fame of Israel inside out. So they're going to be ridiculed and they're going to be mocked. So we see that he's putting a test before Solomon. What does Solomon do? 
Does he pass the test? Well, let's turn, just uh, look a page over here at at chapter 11. Solomon has a really good run as a king. I mean, 1 Kings 10.23 says that he exceeds all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And Nehemiah, who's talking about him, he looks back and he says there was no king like him. He was beloved by God. But even Solomon, Nehemiah says, fell into sin. The first ten chapters of 1 Kings are the record of just about the greatest king that the world has ever seen. And we wish, really, that we could just stop there. But you move on to chapter 11... And now we're going to see Solomon's sin, his idolatry, and really the undoing of the entire nation. So after this conversation with God in chapter 9, Solomon continues on with business as usual. His wealth and his wisdom continue to exceed everyone's imagination. But also he begins to turn from God for two reasons, or in two ways. One, in the area of his wives, and shortly after in the area of his worship. Solomon's sin his wives, and his worship. Chapter 11 here, it says, right at the beginning, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, who he'd already married. Moses would be appalled (laughs) at that. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. These are all from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, because they will turn away your heart after their gods. What it says in Exodus is is they will prostitute themselves after these gods, and then you will do the exact same thing when you marry them. So Solomon's heart gets turned away from these wives that he's given his heart to. Notice how the Bible describes what happened. Uh, you see it in 11.9 as well. That word again. Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. The wisest man on earth became a fool. Not because his mind was tricked. Not because they outsmarted him but because his heart turned away. So what does it mean that when it says that his heart turned away? Uh, we tend to think of the heart, especially on a day like today, on Valentine's Day, as the main organ of emotion, uh, of strong feeling. So that's why um, you use a heart to symbolize what emotion? Love, of course. Yeah, so love, this amazing, strong emotion. The heart is the symbol for love. But in the Bible, the heart isn't just the center of strong feelings, of strong emotion. In the Bible, the heart is the center of decision. It's where you find your will. It's where you find your motivations. It's where you find your identity. The deepest parts of your hidden self are captured when the Bible talks about your heart. So you could read uh, 11.9 to say that in the center of Solomon's inner life, the place where Solomon does all his thinking, all his feeling, all his choosing, in that place, he turned away from God. He started to think about and be captivated by something other than God. That's what it means when his heart turned away from God. So I just wonder, what are you captivated by? What are you interested in? What drives your choices? What motivates you? What what appetites dominate your heart? 
What dominates your thinking and your decisions? Maybe like Solomon, it's it's the strong feelings of, of pleasure and power. But now, I mean, maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a religious person. I mean, most people today, they don't like that tag of being a religious person. They might say, hey, I'm a spiritual person. So you wouldn't say, hey, I'm not religious. I'm not like Solomon. I'm not going out and building churches or temples. And I'm just kind of checking stuff out here at Christ Community Church. I'm not interested really in getting super involved in religion. Because that's too formal. We live in Wilmington. We're, we're cash. You know, we wear sandals to funerals in Wilmington. So, you know, religion, that seems so formal. But I think if you pay attention to what the Bible says, really, we're all religious. Every single person is a worshiper. Every single person is religious in some way or another because every single person's heart is captured by something. And what the Bible says is, is whatever your heart is captured by, that's your God. That's your religion. And that's going to determine the direction of your life, whether it's for life or for death. Because what we serve is what we love. And what we love, that determines the course of our whole life. And not just our life, but it can determine the course of a whole nation. Especially when you have this role like Solomon did as the head worshiper for the people of Israel. So we've seen Solomon wives, his wives. Let's look at his worship. So he starts with maybe just making a compromise saying, yeah, I'll marry these women from other countries. That seems like a good idea. But then he moves from, from disobeying that command to then uh, absolutely turning 180 degrees away from God. And he brings back to Israel the worship of all the evil gods that the Israelites had driven out. And I think this is probably the, the, the absolute low point in Solomon's life. In chapter 11, uh, verses 5 through 7, it says, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And look at this. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. Verse 7, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Where? On the mountain east of Jerusalem. He did this for his foreign wives. So they could make offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Moloch, do you remember him? We talked about him before, but he was the god where people would uh, put their children on the altar to be burned. The child sacrifice god. Solomon, who's built the temple already, goes up to a mountain across the valley from the temple. Turns his back on the glittering gold of God's temple. And makes another temple. For Moloch. Turns his back on the place where God had met with his people. It brought his presence down. It heard his prayers. The place that God had promised. And he turned around and he, and he gave himself to these gods right in the sight of God's temple. And the thing that kills me. You know, David sins. He's got Nathan around. Nathan rebukes him. What happened to Solomon? Nobody said anything nobody stopped him everyone watched him do it 
And maybe because he was so powerful, maybe because they were so prosperous, nobody said a thing. They just went along with it. And he led the entire nation into darkness. And it was as though they had never driven any of the gods out. It was as bad as it was before. So God comes to Solomon a third time. The last time we read of God speaking to Solomon in chapter 11, he says, basically, it's over, Solomon. I warned you. And I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hand. And after you die, the whole nation's going to be in turmoil. Remember everything I said to you in chapter 9? If you don't obey me, it's all going to happen. But it's not going to happen until after you die. So Solomon lives the rest of his life with essentially this death sentence over the people to think about what he's done. Which is why when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you go, man, this seems like he's a pretty depressed guy. Everything's meaningless. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. I mean, that's the beautiful thing with Solomon is you get this look into kind of the inside of his heart. You see why he was so obsessed with trying to teach his sons wisdom. Because he's saying, just try to hold on to something. Try to turn this around if you can. That's why you see things like uh, Ecclesiastes 2, where Solomon talks about his life. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And then when I surveyed all that my hands had done, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained. Or maybe this Proverbs 4.23. My son, keep your heart with all vigilance. Watch over your heart. More than anything else, guard your heart. Protect your commitments in the inmost part of who you are. Guard your heart, for from out of it flow the springs of life. Take heed to the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. My son, don't swerve to the right or to the left. Just turn your foot away from all evil. That's the end of Solomon's life. He's just throwing out fortune cookies to his sons to say, just don't, don't do what I've done. So what's the verdict? I mean, is, is Solomon the king that we've been looking for? I, I don't think so. He's not the king that was promised. His throne's too insecure. Solomon's too insecure. We're supposed to look ahead to someone else. And the true king that we need is Jesus Christ. And just for one minute, let me tell you why. Now, you wouldn't be surprised to hear Jesus in conversation with some scribes and Pharisees about a thousand years later. In Matthew 12, he, he, he looks back on the mighty acts of God in history. And this is what he says. He's talking about Jonah. He's talking about all the different ways that that people recognize that God was doing something among them. He's talking about the queen of Sheba coming up through the great and mighty kingdom of Solomon and saying, look at the wisdom of this guy. And he's saying, remember all the great things God did? Well, guess what? Matthew 12, 36, he says, now one greater than Solomon is here, scribes and Pharisees. Someone among you right now is greater than Solomon himself, the greatest king that your nation ever saw. So why is Jesus greater than Solomon? Well, number one, he's greater in wisdom. I mean, Solomon in wisdom, he spoke the truth. Jesus was the truth. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He, he, was, he never lied. He never spoke falsely. He never deceived anyone. And no one could refute his teaching. Jesus was the way, the truth. And the life. He was greater in wealth. 
than Solomon. Even at his lowest, with no crown, with no throne, with no, no finery, no possessions, no place to lay his head, Jesus had at his fingertips all the resources of creation. That's why he could turn water into wine and multiply bread and fishes, and he had it all. It was all at his hands to dispose of. But instead of hoarding it for himself, what did Jesus do? He emptied himself. That's what Philippians 2 said. And, and he poured himself out for other people. He used his blessings to bless others. Even more wealthy than Solomon. And finally, he was greater in worship. I mean, Solomon built a temple. Jesus didn't just build a temple. Jesus was the temple. He said, my body is the temple. My body is the place where God's presence physically dwells on earth. And if you knock my temple down... If you knock this temple down, guess what? I'll raise it right back up again in three days. There's nothing that you can do to overcome the temple that I am building. And I'm making a people for myself who are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. And when they come to me, they're going to be included in this temple. They'll be built together like living stones. They'll be part of my body. I'll call them the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this people, this temple, this community, this church that I am building. And not only that, with Solomon's disobedience, when he failed in worship, the whole nation was led astray. But Jesus, by his obedience, by his perfect obedience to God's commands, if we put our trust in him, we're all saved. Solomon worshiped imperfectly, and they all fell. Jesus worships perfectly, and he makes our imperfect worship perfect. He was faithful, and his faithfulness covers our unfaithfulness when we put our trust in him. Everything that Solomon passed on was just bad. Everything that Jesus gives us is just grace upon grace upon grace upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. The inheritance that Solomon left for his children, death, destruction, disobedience. The inheritance that Jesus gives, everlasting life. It's never going to spoil or fade and he's going to prepare a place for us. Nothing can take it away. Nobody can take away those that the Father puts in Jesus' hands. He's the perfect worshiper. He's perfectly wealthy. He's perfectly wise. He's the perfect king. He's the one we need. Let's look to him. Let's bow our heads in prayer.